Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Favorite Book Podcast. I'm your host, Malavika, and it's just me today, and we're doing something a little different this week. So in the past, I used to do these wrap-up episodes every month, reviewing and ranking all the books I read in that given month. I did that last season. They were fun to do, but I often found myself repeating things I'd said in the podcast already, so I stopped that little series and just focused on the weekly episode. But today, I want to kick off summer by providing a bit of a summer reading list of my own. I have a list of a few categories with a couple of books each. These are all books I've read relatively recently and have given at least four or five stars. And this is the kicker, I haven't talked about them at length on the podcast. Sure, some of them have definitely come up, but they haven't been the subject of an episode, so to speak. So hopefully won't be repeating myself too much. All my reviews and recommendations will be spoiler-free, of course, and stay tuned for the end because I'll be sharing some sneak peeks for season three of the podcast, which is coming pretty soon. So let's get started. So the first category here is literary fiction. So I define this as contemporary books that are character focused, and this genre tends to be the bulk of my reading. It was hard to narrow this down to two, but I wanted to give you two books that are wildly different and might appeal to whatever reading mood that you happen to be in. So the first one is The Parted Earth by Anjali Njeti. And this book came out a couple of months ago, and it takes a look at the events of and the aftermath of Partition. For those of you that don't know, Partition was the separation of colonized India into India and Pakistan. It was done by the British in 1947 with no real regard for safety and for human life. This was fueled by colonialist perspectives and sectarian beliefs, And as a result, over a million Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs died during partition, and millions more were displaced from their homes. And these figures are underestimates. We honestly now believe that there are so many more whose lives were lost that have just been lost to time in many ways. And so despite the tragedy of the event, which this book does not sugarcoat by any means, what's interesting is that it's juxtaposed in the book with a love story and with family togetherness. So in this book, we follow Deepa Khanna, who is 16 in 1947. She's in love with Amir, a Muslim boy from her town, but the two are separated forever during the conflict. Generations later, Deepa's granddaughter Shan is mourning a miscarriage and a divorce in America. Through her friendship with a Sikh neighbor whose husband also lived through partition, Shan starts to reclaim aspects of her Indian heritage and immerses herself in getting to the bottom of Deepa's love story. As I mentioned, the book does not shy away from the brutality of partition. This book gets very graphic in parts. There are content warnings for suicide, violence, and Islamophobia, among others. But the overall book, as prose, is extremely readable. Um, The prose is smooth and it's elegant, and one of the interesting things that this book does is it definitely shows different types of trauma, and it also shows a myriad of ways these characters cope with trauma, which does add an element of hope to the overall story. Uh, I recommend this book if you're in the mood for a family story with multiple points of view, and if you enjoy historical fiction. It's a pretty slim volume, it really packs a punch, um, and I really enjoyed it. 
The next book I want to highlight here is very different. It is Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal. I found this book at a library book sale a couple of years ago, and I picked it up on a whim. It was like a dollar, so I thought, why not? Uh, it's a really short book, very, very short. It's written in very broad strokes, and it's well known for this short vignette form that it has. Um, you think these are all very disconnected and very vague, but as the pages go on, the characters and the storyline start to fall into place. It's an odd love story of sorts. So there's these unnamed characters and the slow changes in their relationship. The speaker muses on a wide variety of topics, all very philosophical in nature. Um, but ultimately, all of her thoughts are colored by this constant conflict between uh, creativity and family. So thinking about what do we give up for our loved ones and are these necessary sacrifices that we make? Um, I'll say flat out that this style of writing is not for everyone. There's a lot of people that are not a big fan of this book and this style of writing. This is also the kind of book you can read in a single sitting. Most people honestly recommend that way of reading this book. I honestly feel that this book really warrants rereads or coming back to to truly grasp everything Awful is doing on the page. Um, the vignette style can be frustrating at times. It all doesn't really sink in on that first read either. I honestly think I'm due to give this book another reread. I think I read it last about a year ago. Um, but I really think that if you pause and take a step back, this book all does come together. It's a great one to pick up if you're, you're in the mood for something short, but want something with plenty of literary merit. And I know Jenny Awful has another book out, Weather. I haven't read it yet. I've heard some mixed reviews on that one too, but it's definitely on my list and I'm definitely going to get to it at some point. So that's literary fiction. And now I want to move on to the second category, memoir. So before I started this podcast, I didn't really read a lot of memoir. I always thought it was just kind of this like inspirational rah-rah type of writing, you know, celebrity memoirs, things like that. But lately, I've really come to love this genre, and there are so many memoirs I've grown to cherish. I think my love for memoir started with Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, which I talk about whenever I get the chance. I think it's one of the few celebrity memoirs that just sticks with you and doesn't read very samey. Um, but I'm giving you a couple of different types of memoirs today. These two are, again, wildly different, but both of them have stuck with me since I've read them. The first one I want to talk about is probably the best book I've read so far this year, and it is Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. You have probably seen this book everywhere, and for good reason. It is a prime example of what honesty and detail can do for a memoir. There are counts of grief everywhere, especially about losing a parent, losing a loved one. Uh, but Zahner's take on what it's like to watch her mother get sick and eventually pass away from cancer stands alone, in my opinion. She brings this dimension to it, such as her upbringing as half Korean, half white American. She discusses her tenuous relationship with her mother, the faults from her childhood that affect her as an adult, sort of that lingering trauma, and what it's like to build a relationship after an integral part has been lost. So in this case, after her mother passes, what does she and her father do to fill the void? Uh, the food writing in this book is exquisite as well. So if you catch on to that title, H Mart, that refers to the Korean supermarket, H Mart. And it's really interesting to see how Zahner tries to use food, which is one of the main bridges she has to her Korean culture, as a way to connect with her mother in illness. And it's even more interesting to see these attempts fall short. So it's almost like taking a sledgehammer to some of those tropes as food as a bridge. 
Um, instead, we're kind of turning the trope on its head and seeing the ways that food can fail in building a relationship. Uh, so, I mean, by turning that trope on its head and in many other ways, this is not a treacly, melodramatic, run-of-the-mill memoir. This is very detailed. It's very personal, very nuanced. It will make you cry. That title does live up to its name, and I highly recommend it. If you want just a taste of it, the very first essay in this collection, the titular Crying in H-Mart, about Zahner's experience in a Korean H-Mart after the loss of her mother. That essay is published in The New Yorker. If you've got free articles left, I ran out of free articles at like the first week of the month. But if you have free articles left, it's published there. And if that doesn't make you feel some things, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. It made me feel things. And everyone I know who's read it has felt things. So if you want to experience a little bit about what Zahner's writing can do, I would check out that essay first. But honestly, the whole book is so amazing. I highly recommend it. And I've started listening to some of Zahner's music as well as Japanese Breakfast, and I've been impressed by that too. So good on you for getting me to listen to something other than the five songs I listen to all the time. Anyway, so the second memoir I want to recommend is All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. So this is a book that's technically billed as a young adult memoir, and it's true that teens would likely relate most. But I found this book so lovely and so compelling as an adult reader. So George discusses their journey growing up queer and black in a society that unfortunately neglects this intersection of identity. So it's not just one identity or the other. It is what happens when you are at the intersection of the two and about George's personal journey. While they do reach out to the reader directly and encourage self-discovery, especially for other LGBT people of color, like I said, the story is also very deeply personal. It thrives in the personal anecdote. The story moves chronologically, starting with George's early conflicts, relationships with their sibling and grandmother, siblings and grandmother, and then moving on to coming to terms with masculinity and femininity as concepts, as well as the beginnings and early relationships. So I think what really elevated this story for me is the audiobook. So I stand by that the best audiobooks, especially for memoirs, are the ones read by the author themselves. And this one was no exception. Um, George Johnson was an amazing reader. I just wanted to hear them tell me stories all day long. Uh, they have such a way of telling stories and a way with words. And so it felt very close and intimate it was like sitting down with someone and hearing their entire life story in the best possible way. And there's there's so much wit and, you know, great attention to detail in this writing, too. So I really recommend this one. I recommend it to memoir lovers, young and old. So if you have teens and young adults in your life, even if they aren't at that intersection of identity, I think there's a lot they can gain from this particular memoir. There's a lot of really great stuff in here. So definitely recommend this. So now moving on from memoir to a third category. So this is the good old romance. So I don't read a lot of romance. I, prior to starting this podcast, I think the only romances I really liked were Jane Austen novels. And I still stand by that Jane Austen novels are my favorite romances. But I really want to focus on a couple of contemporary romances I've read in recent months that I've really liked, despite my cynicism. And so the two of these books actually have a ton in common. So I'm going to draw the comparisons as they come about. So the first one is called The Flat Share by Beth O'Leary. And so the premise of this one is really silly. It's pretty ludicrous. So basically a young woman, Tiffy, she leaves a fraught relationship and she needs a cheap place to stay. So she answers an ad for a flat share. 
but it's not just sharing an apartment, it's sharing a bed. So basically she works days and her flatmate Leon works nights and he's away on weekends. So for months at a time, they never really see each other as they just inhabit the same apartment and learn to share space and they do most of their early communicating through notes. It's pretty silly and escapist just by the premise, but as someone who's lived in New York, rent can be super expensive. And part of me wonders if people have actually tried this and have had some success in real life. Is this a way to hack rent issues? I don't know. Let me know if you've tried this. Anyway, what makes this book more than like a silly love story is the real undercurrent of trauma. So I said in the episode that I did with Rachel Allen talking about the hating game that I really only tend to like contemporary romance when the characters have real problems and this one is definitely true. So Tiffy is in the throes of an abusive relationship. There's the constant push and pull, the tension, and her gradual realization that this just isn't a good situation for her. It's quite tense, and so I I do want to warn my readers that if that's content you're sensitive to, just be aware of that. Um, Additionally, Leon, our other point of view character, his brother is incarcerated, and and Leon spends whatever little time and money he has on his brother's welfare. And so these are real, tangible conflicts. These are real problems. And while this book can be theatrical at times, sometimes escapist, It really treats the main problems here with empathy and respect. And, you know, if you like your fluffy romances, there's also a delightful set of secondary characters. The whole book is wonderfully British. So maybe that's just internalized colonialism or whatever, but I have a really soft spot for British romances. I think it's because of my love for Jane Austen or just things always sound more romantic in a British accent, I guess, or at least when they're not taking themselves too seriously. That's That's my take on it. And of course... The second romance I want to talk about also happens to be a British romance with real problems as an undercurrent to the love story, and that's Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert. And so I definitely have talked about this one before. I talked about it on that Hating Game episode I mentioned, uh, but I really wanted to give some space for this book on its own and talk about why I really, really love it. So a, a brief synopsis, Chloe is a software developer in her early 30s. She's newly independent on a mission to get a life by taking risks, putting herself out there, and stop hiding from the world. And partially motivating this is Chloe's battle with her chronic illnesses. These have led her to losing friendships and relationships, and ultimately Chloe walling herself off from new experiences. Then enter Red Morgan, a motorbike, 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 motorbike riding artist that works as the super in Chloe's building. They have, you know, spats at first, you know, they're your opposites attract kind of thing. But then Chloe gets the idea to involve the dreamy, red-haired, bad boy, Red Morgan in her quest to get a life. It's a really delightful book. I love seeing the dual points of view because I really feel that's the only way you can get to know both of your love interests. And it's just like the flat chair, which did the same thing. I love getting to know both of them. Chloe is a really fun character. I related a lot to some of her neuroses and I deeply empathized with the struggle she's gone through and goes through with her health. And Red is an absolute sweetheart. He should be everyone's book boyfriend. Um, He has his traumas, but he gets past them. This is a mild spoiler, but I have to emphasize this, and I mentioned it in the Hating Game episode, but we have a man that goes to therapy in this book. And how often do we see men going to therapy represented in fiction? Not very often. So if that doesn't motivate you to read this, I don't know what will. I thought that was amazing. 
Um, I will say that there are some heavy topics in here as well. We mentioned the chronic illness. There's also stories of past abuse here. Um, and there is a lot of sex here too. This is not a fade to black kind of romance we got here. But overall, it's a really wonderful book. And I need to read the other two in this series. I've been putting them off, but I'm going to get to them, I promise. So now on to a great category, which is books by dead white people. I'm reluctant to call these classics since that term is outdated. It's based on a stodgy, you know, Eurocentric literary canon that hasn't been updated in years. But both of these books are ones that I think remain relatable even today. I think they've been somewhat neglected by the literary canon. And they're not these big trudging reads that a lot of classics tend to be. And coincidentally, I haven't talked about these books too much on my show, but I have talked about them on other shows. So this is my chance to plug in a couple of those episodes if you want to know more about these books. So the first one is The Natural by Bernard Malamud. So I talked about this one on the Fuckboys of Literature podcast with Emily Edwards, which by the way, Emily has made her podcast Patreon exclusive, which is not something I plan to do for my show, but I wholeheartedly support Emily in doing that with her show. She's really creating some excellent content on Fuckboys of Literature. So if you're not a patron over there and you're interested in the wonderful work she does, I highly recommend you check it out. But anyway... Uh, consider this a submission for the sports book category I was considering, but I know my audience, I know you didn't necessarily want a sports book category from me, but so even if you are not a sports fan, there is a lot to admire about this particular book. So in this book, we follow Roy Hobbs. He's at first an up and coming pitcher, suddenly struck down via gunshot. And then later he's an aging hitter with one last shot at the major leagues. So this story is one of human obsession and corruption, and the writing elevates sports to the level of pure art, which is something that the geeky sports fan and me just fangirled over when I first read this book. Finally, someone taking sports as seriously as I took it. Um, Alamud's language is just amazing here. Um, I compared this book to The Great Gatsby when I talked about it with Emily, and I stand by that comparison. It's a facade of glamour with this seedy underbelly, and while Roy Hobbs is no Jay Gatsby, he completely lacks all of that charm, they're subject to similar temptations and similar obsessions. It's an older book for sure. There's a fair amount of casual racism and a whole lot of sexism here. Uh, But as a novel, as pure storytelling, to me, this is an underrated gem from the mid-20th century, and the movie does not do it justice. The movie takes it in a totally different direction. It tries to make it this big, triumphant sports story, and that's not what this book is. Not at all. This is not your sports movie narrative type of book. So you got to check out the book as it is. I, I just think this is an underrated gem and you have to check it out. If you if you like classics and this is a classic you've neglected, even though it's about sports, do get it a shot. And so um, kind of going along the same theme with more dour, depressing books, I think this just tends to be my taste in older classics, so to speak. Uh, my second choice for this category is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. And I talked about this book on my uh, sister podcast or podcast twins show, The Best Book Ever podcast. If you don't follow what Julie Strauss is doing over there, you've got to. Julie is an amazing host and her show, if you like my show, you're going to like her show. We have very similar themes. We found each other by chance and I love what she does on that show. 
But anyway, I talked about this book on that show. And one of the things I mentioned about this book is that for years, it hindered my own writing. So Carson McCullers published this at the ripe old age of 23. And so when I turned 23 and I had nothing even finished to my name, let alone published, I had a bit of an existential crisis and felt bad about my own writing for months and years on end. So my personal neuroses aside, this book is absolutely fabulous, and I feel it often gets overlooked when we talk about Southern writing from the mid-century. So this novel follows several point-of-view characters, including a young girl, a labor agitator of sorts, a political physician, and the owner of a diner. So all of these characters sort of focus their wandering on John Singer, who is a relative newcomer to town. He is deaf and mute and has the uncanny ability to make others feel at home. Uh, this interplay between the characters and the musing on what it means to be lonely in a desolate southern town, it fits all of my literary sensibilities. I will say this is a dense book. You may not be in the mood for a book this dense. I had kind of forgotten about that on my most recent reread. This is a bit of a slower read overall, but the prose is wonderful here. Again, great attention to detail. There are some common patterns with the books I love. Um, I will say there are some questionable choices here. So first and foremost, McCullers is a white woman choosing to take on the perspective of a black man and using that character, some of the societal statements she makes through his mouth that can feel a little awkward at times and definitely takes a critical lens. Um, there's a certain amount that could be said for product of the time. This was written in 1940. But I feel that modern readers should be aware of problematic content that they may encounter. Uh, still, I maintain that if you are looking at books by dead white people, this is not a book you should overlook. I feel like this book belongs up there with the best of Faulkner and Tennessee Williams and the other Southern greats. Um, I love a lot of Carson McCullers' other work, her later work, but it, maybe I don't feel as bad about not writing anything by 23 because this was her very first book and I maintain it was her best. So Definitely check out The Heart is a Lonely Hunter if you're in the mood for a detailed, slower, denser classic. So now we're coming to a genre I have deep affection for and a genre I have been so happy to explore in recent months, and that is the short story collection. For those of you that know me personally, I've been writing short stories for quite a while, and exploring the genre recently has been an exercise in craft for me. So I've read quite a few collections recently, and these are a couple I just really, really like. So the first one is Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, and this is a book that came out in 2018, I believe, and the thing I love about this book is that these stories pull no punches. Everything is direct and raw and in your face. And sometimes you just need a book like this. You don't need a book that's just kind of dancing around a topic and being vague and literary. Sometimes you want someone to tell it exactly like it is. And this book does that. So what this book does specifically, it takes concepts we're all aware of in society, racism, consumerism, corruption, and criminal justice, and it distorts them just enough to veer into speculative fiction, magical realism, but not so far as to seem absurd. It stands on that line so well, where it feels hauntingly relatable, but just distorted enough to bring it into a new genre. It finds that sweet spot. Um, I think about the story, The Finkelstein Five, all the time, and the titular story, Friday Black, makes me never want to set foot in a crowded store again. Just, guys, don't shop on Black Friday. Like, dystopia aside, like, 
the workers need to be with their families. I don't know. That's my own take. But this book is disorienting, thought-provoking, and I really wish I could write like this. I am so excited for everything that this writer puts out going forward. I'm so excited to read what he has to write. I could give you plot lines and details about individual stories, but honestly, I think you just need to experience this collection for yourself. If you're in the mood for something that's going to horrify you a little bit, this is the collection, definitely. And so the second short story collection I want to recommend is very different. And I recommend this with plenty of caveats. So bear with me here. And that is Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. So this is not a recent book. This came out in 1999. And like I said, I picked this one with many caveats. So it's so easy for Lahiri to be the only South Asian writer many people read and experience. She's the one that's won the Pulitzer for this book, actually. She's the one familiar with, uh, she's the one with the familiar tropes about often Ivy League educated Indians and lonely immigrants and tropes we've come to love. And she did sort of bring those into the mainstream. Her stories are often quiet and subtle. They deal with these family intricacies. And honestly, even Lahiri herself has veered away from the subject matter that made her a household name. She's moved on to other projects and themes that interest her in a new stage of life. And so I picked this book as a recommendation, partially for the nostalgia factor and for the influence this book has had on me. It was one of the very first I ever read that dealt with modern Indian American stories. It sparked my curiosity. I've come back to the titular story time and time again. I still think it's one of the best short stories out there, the interpreter of Malady's titular story. Um, I revel in her use of detail, in her carefully placed anecdotes, how she handles jumps in time. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of Lahiri's second collection, Unaccustomed Earth, and I'm still taken with her use of language, but ultimately I do feel lulled to a certain degree by retreading of similar subject matter. So it's not to say that that book isn't great and that Interpreter Maladies isn't great, I just feel that now that I've read more broadly across the South Asian diaspora, my tastes have changed a lot. Um, I encourage you that if you read Interpreter of Maladies, read it as a jumping off point. Read Lahiri and then read others. Mira Jacob, Hanif Qureshi, Anil Kumarasamy, uh, Akhil Kumarasamy, excuse me. So many others. Uh, for a more eloquent take on all of this, I want you to check out an essay. This is an article that was published in the Drift Mag by podcast guest Sanjana Sathian, who wrote Gold Diggers. And so she talks about it a bit in the episode, some of these themes, but she really highlights it in this article. It's amazing. She coins this idea of Lahiriism, and she analyzes the writer's place in respectability politics and writing for the white gaze, so to speak. It's much more eloquent than I could ever do. And I will say Sanjana is more scathing on this book than I am. I still really, really enjoy this book. Um, her take is very detailed and it's really worth considering as you explore the South Asian literary diaspora and choose what you want to engage in. Whew, that was a long one. And so we're coming down to the end here. And the very last book I want to highlight, I was planning a whole science books category. So I'm a genetic counselor, as I've mentioned before. I don't often read science books in my spare time. Sometimes I just like to have a break from that, you know, work-life balance. But there are some really meaningful science books I've read in recent years. 
Uh, I've referenced Medical Bondage by Deirdre Cooper Owens and its horrifying account of the origins of American gynecology. Uh, That book is not for the faint of heart. And this book, although a little less graphic, is along a similar vein. And this book also intersects science with feminism, and in this case, often um, intersectional feminism. And this book is Unwell Women by Eleanor Cleghorn. And so Cleghorn takes a really detailed look at the history of Western medicine in relation to the marginalization of women. So it starts from the Uh, myth of the wandering womb, which persisted for hundreds of years, all the way to exclusion and research studies, reproductive autonomy, the onset of hysteria as a concept, maternal mortality rates, and so much more. This book takes on an awful lot. We meet some hideous male doctors, some amazing female trailblazers, and some really detailed takes on controversial figures like Margaret Sanger. Uh, The book does a really good job at incorporating the separate narratives of women of color throughout history. It is focused on Western medicine. She does make that disclaimer early. There are some platitudes towards the LGBTQ community, but it is mostly focused on cis womanhood for the most part. Um, While there are some shortcomings with what this book can cover, it is a relatively short book on a huge topic. I think it is an absolutely fascinating read for those in the medical field and those outside of it. And this is a really, really recent book, so I urge you to check it out. I don't think the book has gotten the press that it really deserves. And so I really encourage you to check this one out, Unwell Women by Eleanor Cleghorn. And so that's it for this set of recommendations. I plan to do this every now and then, you know, maybe take on some different genres every now and then, or just highlight the books that I happen to read for fun. Um, If you'd like to read some more formal reviews, I do publish a monthly written review with the Chicago Review of Books all of which can be accessed for free via their website. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, specifically, I have reviews for Unwell Women, The Parted Earth, and Crying in H Mart up on those sites for more extended thoughts. Um, apologies for this not being the most organized and fluent edited version or edited episodes. I wanted to think keep things casual as this season winds down. And speaking of which, we have one more episode this season, and then we'll be delving into season three in mid-July. So I'll be taking off a couple weeks to regroup, plan episodes, finish that long-awaited website, all that good stuff. We've got a lot of exciting things coming in season three. Interviews with readers and writers, of course, but also exploring some new genres. We're going to be talking about some true crime on this show, which I actually really love, true crime. Uh, Some Tolkien, which I consider its own genre. Some underrated gems and some well-loved favorites. Uh, We've got Kidlet coming on the show, so that's going to be really exciting. So we're really taking some departures, learning about some new genres, and that's really the reason I started this show in the first place. I'm also going to be delving into some other literary projects here and there, so stay tuned for those. Uh, But more than anything, I want to thank everyone for listening, for supporting the Your Favorite Book podcast and for affirming me, Malavika, as a voice and a creator when it's hard to be either of those things. So thank you, all of you, for your listenership, and I wish you happy reading.